Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here today. I want you to know about a great promise in Scripture and, and how I have prayed for you this morning. You know, the, the Bible has this great promise kind of tucked deep down in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2.30, it says, He who honors me, I will honor. And it's just my belief that if you're here right now, it's because you desire to honor the Lord this morning, huh? You decide, hey, he's worth it, and uh, I want to honor him. I mean, you have the bad weather, you have the excuse, you know there's going to be people missing, and, and yet you, you chose to be here. And I've just said, Lord, I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, when they come in there, I, I believe it's a desire to honor you, and I pray you'll honor them. As they, as they leave this building and head into a new week, I don't know how the Lord might fulfill that in your life, but He's made a promise, and I pray you're going to see how God honors you this week. You know, one of my favorite sports stories is, is about Larry Bird. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of the NBA. I'm certainly not a fan of the Celtics, but if you, man, if you love sports stories, if you love excellence... If you love competition, then this is about as good a story as it gets. Uh, the story goes, and I've actually heard both of these players interviewed about this, so I know it, I know it happened like this. Uh, the, South, the Celtics were playing the Seattle Supersonics. That's a, a team that's moved and doesn't exist anymore in Seattle. But they were playing the Seattle Supersonics. It was a few seconds left in the game. It was a tie game. The Celtics called a timeout. They went and organized their play. As Larry Bird came out of the timeout, he walked over to Xavier McDaniels, who was guarding him, whose job it was to keep him from doing anything that might win the game. And he walked over to Xavier and said, Xavier, we're going to inbound the ball over there. They're going to pass it to me right there. I'm going to slide right here. And this is right here is where I will take the, jump, uh, the winning jump shot. And there's not a thing you can do to stop me. And two seconds later, that's exactly what Larry Bird did, leaving Xavier McDaniels to express something that I won't share right here. <laughs> I tell you what, that is taking calling the shot to a whole new level, isn't it? When you tell your opponent, here's exactly what I'm going to do, and you can't stop me. Today, we are going to talk about the greatest shot caller ever, and shockingly, it's not Larry Bird. We're continuing today our series called Christmas Words. You remember if you were here last week, we started with the word virgin. We looked at that word. What did, it, what did it mean in the Christmas story? What was its importance to who Jesus was and what he was doing? We saw its impact on our lives and, and that that's not just some historical information we acknowledge or call it a belief. It should impact how we live and, and how we respond to God. And today we're going to look at the word fulfilled. Now, that you probably won't see that on a Christmas card uh, in these coming weeks. Fulfilled, I don't think, evokes some of the same Christmas sentimentality as words like manger or star or angels. But it is a profoundly significant word. It is profoundly significant to the Christmas story. And of all of our Christmas words, would you believe fulfilled is the one that appears the most often. As a matter of fact, let me show you that. Turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 and 2, uh, first book there in your New Testament, if you're kind of thumbing through, uh, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. Zechariah, Malachi, of course, being the end of the Old. 
get to Mark or Luke, you've gone too far. But aim for Matthew 1 and 2. I want to read a couple of verses. And actually, as I read these, my goal is not that you understand them. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever said that before. Uh, I'm not even going to be reading some of these verses in their entirety or even a whole sentence. My goal, and we're going to come back to meanings in a moment. My goal is just that you see the word fulfilled. That you see how often this word is popping up in what we call the Christmas story. Look down there at your Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then chapter 2, verse 15. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We can go to Luke 1 and 2 and find the same thing happening. Folks, as God communicates to us the Christmas story, he shows us himself intentionally, purposely fulfilling prophecies. Now, why, why is that so important? Go back to the NBA. Go back to Larry Bird. Larry Bird calls a shot. Larry Bird tells the opponent exactly what he's going to do. But it's not just the words that he said. It's that he could pull it off. It's that he could say the words and then that he could do it. And for that, we hold him in awe. We revere him. We built a building for him called the Hall of Fame to put him and and those like him in there because we think they're so great. We hear that story and it gives us goosebumps. Most of the ladies in here probably say, no, it didn't didn't give me goosebumps at all. But come on, a few of you sports fanatic guys, that's what it does for you. Now, now if, if knowing that, if that evokes that kind of response from us toward a, a Larry Bird, then folks, what should it evoke from us when God is doing something much bigger, much better than shooting a basket? When God is doing something much more profound, not only does He speak these things hundreds of years in advance, but then He brings them about. Folks, no other religion does this. No, no other God does this, has the prophecies, has the evidence for the historical fulfillment. Folks, the word Christmas fulfilled helps us to identify and place great confidence in Jesus Christ as the very real, the very true and only God. Now, having made that statement, let's, let's back up now and elaborate a little bit on what Jesus fulfilled, what God fulfilled in these prophecies. There's over 300 references in the Old Testament to the Messiah. There are 61 what we call major prophecies, and Jesus fits every one of these 300 references. Jesus fulfills all 61 of these prophecies. Let me show you some of these. I want to show you a few that begin with the what we call the Christmas story, a a few prophecies around his entrance into the world. These are not all related to to Christmas, but, but a few that do relate to the Christmas story. And the first one is really kind of unimpressive. 
The, the, the first one's kind of generic. It's not an ooh, it's not an aw. Ah, it wouldn't probably one of the favorites, but boy, is it important. And it's the very first prophecy that appears in Scripture. It's all the way back at the very beginning of things in Genesis 3. And if you'll remember what is going on in Genesis 3, uh, Satan or the serpent ha- has come to Adam and Eve, tempted them, led them into sin. So there's been the fall of mankind. We have fallen into sin. It's now a sinful world. And so now God begins to speak and begins to move on what he's going to do with the mess. What, what, what he is going to do with what has happened. And he, he divvies out, if you will, some consequences to the man, to the woman. And then he speaks to Satan about what he has done in the world. And he gives this prophecy, I'm going to deal with this. Let me tell you how I'm going to deal with it. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. I'm going to deal with this through her seed. He, who's he? Her seed, a person, somebody that's going to be born of the woman. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I'm not suggesting that somebody in Old Testament days would have read this verse and understand what you and I now look back into history with 2020 vision. But this is a picture of the cross. This is not the prophecy I'm referring to. This is just a, a, a picture of the cross. Satan does strike Jesus on the heel in the cross where he kills him. But of course, the greater wound is not the heel, but the head. And of course, we know Jesus rises from the dead, defeats death, defeats the grave, defeats Satan, dealing the greater bruise to uh, to Satan. But we see here that he, Jesus, is going to come through the seed of a woman. He's going to be a person. You might say, oh, okay, is that important? Well, it means it's not going to be an angel. God's not, remember, this has just happened. And you walk in, so who made this mess? Who's going to clean this up? I mean, when we see something broken, when we see that, that's kind of an obvious question. And God says, hey, I'll tell you who's going to clean the mess. It's somebody that's going to be born through Eve. The the very one who has just fallen, I'm going to fix all this through her. It's going to be somebody through her. Now, if that was the only prophecy, that would leave a whole lot of candidates, wouldn't it? I mean, if that's all we had, the field is pretty wide open. And so in the, in the coming prophecies in the future, God begins to narrow the field a little bit. And boy, he certainly narrows the field with the word we looked at last week, which was a prophecy. He narrows the field with not only will he be born of the seed of a woman, but he will be born of a virgin. Uh, let's go back there. There we go prophecy therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel it's going to be a person but boy this person this fully human person is going to be born in a really special way if you stop and think about it you and I have to be conceived right we have to have a beginning but, but Jesus did not have to have a beginning. He already existed. And so God says, here's the special way this one already in existence is going to enter the world. And we see that part of the, the prophecy fulfilled in Matthew. It says there, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, very important phrase, Before they became husband and wife, before they do what husband and wives do and produce what husband and wives produce, before any of that happened, the Holy Spirit moved and placed that child, placed Jesus inside the womb of Mary. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What prophet? 
Isaiah. We just saw that. Joseph took Mary as his wife, but kept her. She already was, and she still is. Kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, that really limits the field, doesn't it? I mean, that, that kind of, we, we had the whole planet. Anybody born of a woman could potentially be the Messiah. But when you throw in the virgin birth, that, that kind of narrows it down. I mean, if, you know, if we had a, a, a facility where you could be tested, to, you know, take your child to be tested to see if, there was a Messiah, if they're the Messiah, there'd be a sign out front and say, unless your child was born by a virgin birth, no need to enter. And we will say, well, shoot, why didn't you put that on the website so I wouldn't have made a trip all the way down here? Yeah, that narrows the field, doesn't it? But, but why the virgin birth? Well, I already answered that a little bit. He's already in existence. He doesn't need to be conceived. He doesn't need to have a beginning. But it's more than that. You see, the third prophecy shows us that. Not only is this person going to be born of a woman in a very special way, but that person will be the very Son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will surely tell you of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. This is a statement God is actually making to David at that moment. And God refers to the king's little k, small k, as his son. Today I have begotten you. That adds a little bit of a a twist to it because God's kind of foreshadowing here. This person I'm going to place in king over Israel, I'm going to refer to as a son, small s, because ultimately one day there's going to be a son, capital S, who will hold this throne eternally. And we see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God, for everybody there, that took place when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist. And so John heard it. All the people that were there watching John the Baptist heard it. This is my Son, a voice from heaven. This is the one I've been talking to you about for hundreds of years. This is the one for whom all the prophecies are about. God points it out. Now, a virgin birth, God speaking from heaven. And those are all supernatural events, right? I mean, it requires some faith to believe that something like that happened. But if you're searching for God, is there a God? Has that God spoken? Has that God moved? Has He, has he worked in this world and we're trying to seek Him and to understand Him? We would anticipate... Hey, there might be some supernatural. Uh, you know, God's bigger than the, than the natural realm. God, God can move beyond the natural realm. And so we should expect some of that. We shouldn't be surprised that miracles are involved in these prophecies. But not every prophecy is about miracles. Some of the prophecies are very simple. If you go back to, to Genesis chapter 3, you got this prophecy that says, well, the Messiah... The, the, the person who's going to fix all this is going to be born of a woman. But God doesn't take much longer to narrow that down. We come to Genesis chapter 22. And God says, well, now let me, let me tell you the exact family that this is going to happen in. I mean, Eve is kind of the, the mother of all creation. But let's narrow that family down a little bit. And he says that the Messiah is going to come through Abraham. Well, Abraham has a couple of sons. Well, you know, is, 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 which one is it? Well, it's going to be Isaac. Okay, well, Isaac has a couple of sons. Uh, Which one is it going to be? Well, it's going to be Jacob. Well, Jacob has 12 sons. Which one is it going to be? It's going to be uh, Judah. Well, Judah's the largest of the tribes in Israel. I mean, how do do we pick him out in that large tribe? Well, it's going to be through the family line of Jesse. Well, Jesse has seven sons. It's going to come through the family line of David. You see, the Scripture helps us go from all the earth to a nation right down to a family. 
And not only does it prophesy the family that the Messiah will come through, but even the birthplace of the Messiah will be Bethlehem. We saw again this verse last week and looked at it. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me uh, to be ruler in Israel. Now, if you just stop with that line right there, you've just got a statement saying, hey, a great king could be any king, but a great king is going to come out of Bethlehem. It's the next line that really ups the ante a little bit, but his going force are from of old, from the ancient of days. As we looked at that last week, we saw that's an expression saying he's coming out of eternity. Oh, you're going to see a king born in Bethlehem But he didn't begin in Bethlehem. He began in eternity. And of course, we know that one was fulfilled. We already know the Christmas story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, folks, there's a place where you got to stop and start pulling all these prophecies together. They all work together. They all have to be fulfilled. In other words, kind of maybe a crazy way of expressing this. But let's say you could prove... Somebody could prove, here's this woman here, and she has had a a virgin birth in Saskatchewan. And she's French-Canadian. I don't think French-Canadians are in Saskatchewan, are they? Okay, well, she traveled there, just like Mary, okay? So she's traveled there. I can prove, and I don't know how we would prove that, but, but here she is. She has had a virgin birth. I mean, could possibly that be the Messiah? No. Not at all. That's, that would be a miracle. That would be supernatural. I don't know why that would happen or, or how it would be explained. But it's not the Messiah. Because it's not just a big miracle. It's not just the virgin birth. It is, has to be in the family line of Abraham down through David. It has to be in Bethlehem. Folks, these prophecies are not Jesus going one for three. That might put them on the all-star team, but one for three is not going to do it. It's not almost all. It's 100% of the prophecies working together to point us out, point out the identity of Jesus Christ. You know, even the gifts, you know, all of our manger scenes have the little wise men, kings, whatever you want to call them, you know, coming and bringing those gifts to Jesus. That was prophesied. And again, in Isaiah, over 700 years before it happened, they will bring gold and frankincense. By the way, that's the word for next week. There's a lot to understand about frankincense. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And you know the Christmas story, how that was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. Magi from the east arrived after coming into the house. They saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Awesome scene, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've just kind of come to expect that part of the story and don't think much about it. These are foreign dignitaries. These are men of power, men of position. They probably don't generally go out to a barn and bow down before a baby, giving them incredibly expensive gifts of their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're going to see next week, folks, frankincense and myrrh actually as valuable as gold in this day. The way that they were made, the way that they got them, how you would lay hands on that, very, very expensive. They're giving tremendous wealth to Jesus right there in that moment. All fulfilled. Folks, God fulfills every one of these details. Do you see the specificity? The the concreteness? The way He pinpoints? And the truth of the matter is, most of the prophecies I've shown you so far are actually more general in nature than some of the prophecies that come about His life, His death, His resurrection. It gets even more specific. Let me show you just a, a sampling, a smattering of those prophecies. 
Things that are prophesied about Jesus, that he'd be preceded by a messenger. Of course, John the Baptist uh, fulfilled that with Jesus. His ministry would begin in Galilee, which it did as a ministry of miracles, which it was. He would be resurrected. All that was prophesied. I love these two. Betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, the, the reason I point those two out, folks, the Pharisees were, I mean, they were biblical scholars, they knew the scriptures. Now, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They were trying to lead the nation to reject Jesus as Messiah. And, and yet, as they're moving to do that, one of these numbskulls goes and says, let's get one of his friends, Judas, and let's pay him 30 pieces of silver. I'm sitting here thinking, how does not at least one of the Pharisees go, guys, time out. No, not 30. 29, 31, but we can't pay him 30. You know what these two things are right here? This is Larry Bird getting in the face of Xavier McDaniels. This is God coming right up to the face of the enemy and saying, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And even when you're trying to stop it, there'll be nothing you can do. You will not only not be able to stop me, you'll make it happen. You'll play right into my hands. Can we just stop and give God a round of applause? We would Larry Bird. What an awesome shot. Go, go God. Okay. It's also prophesied hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22. All of, uh, psalm 22 is a long psalm and not all of it is dealing with this. But the verses around verse 16. I find Psalm 22 to be one of the most eerie passages in all the Bible. You know, these prophecies kind of point some things out. We look for the connection. I'm saying, hey, it's specific. It's concrete. Psalm 22 is beyond specific and concrete. It's just eerie. So, Psalm 22 doesn't read like a prophecy. It reads like somebody dictating current events. It reads like somebody sitting on Mount Calvary describing in detail what is going on. But yet it's happening. It's, he's not sitting on Mount Calvary. This is taking place over 900 years before Jesus is on Mount Calvary. But it gets even crazier. He's describing the crucifixion when the crucifixion didn't exist yet. That, that mode of killing people, that mode of execution wasn't even in existence. And yet Psalm 22, check it out. You think, man, this is somebody describing the whole thing. Psalm 22 describes it. It was prophesied he'd be crucified with thieves, uh, that his garments would be parted and lots cast, that his bones not broken and his side pierced. Now you say, bones not broken? That's not a, how big a prophecy is that? Lots of people die without their bones being broken, not lots of people on a cross. Breaking their legs was how you ended the crucifixion. So if you were on a cross, now if that was the only prophecy you had, that wouldn't sound very impressive. When you know he's on the cross, that his bones are not going to be broken, but instead his side would be pierced. You see, when they came to Jesus, they being the Roman guards, professional executioners, if they did not fill their job, they didn't lose their job, they would be executed. So they were really good at making sure somebody was dead. And when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, but just to make sure... They took a spear, rammed it through his side, all fulfilling prophecy. It was even prophesied that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That might be better say would borrow a rich man's tomb. I'll give it back to you Sunday afternoon. He'd still get to use it. Folks, do you see the clarity? And God fulfilling every one of these just like he called the shot. 
Now, folks, this should absolutely inspire tremendous faith in us. I mean, it should rock our world. It should change our life. You should look at this information. I actually believe you and I should never be the same again. It should inspire tremendous faith. Wow, this Jesus actually is the Son of God. Not just a religious belief I have. Not just a warm blanket when times are tough. There really is a God and He really is that God. And that God has spoken and His words must carry a whole new level of meaning. A whole new level of power in my life. Because I believe what is being said. Because God has given me reason to believe what I said. I obey. And how about our faith? Should this not inspire faith in all the prophecies about the second coming? I mean, if God batted a thousand for the first coming prophecies, I'm guessing it's a safe bet to say he's going to bat a, th- bat a thousand on the second coming prophecies. Say, well, it's been an awful long time. Some of these prophecies on the first coming went back over a thousand years. God doesn't mind throwing stuff out there and letting us wait, but it happens, and it happens just like he said. Now, there are reasons. Can you believe this? People would look at all this and say, well, I don't believe that. They, they would have a couple of objections to that. I've read this. I've seen this. They'll say, well, yeah, he fulfilled those, but he did it on purpose. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll go with that. Of course he did it on purpose. Now, of course, what they're saying is he manipulated. J- Jesus manipulated events going on around him to make himself look like, hey, I fulfilled the prophecies. I'm, I'm the Messiah. And you know what? You can't deny the possibility of that. Yeah, I just said that. I, I could see Jesus manipulating some of these things. How, how about that thing about the bro- bones not being broken and the side pierced? You know, all throughout history, criminals have paid executioners. They did it all the time. And in England, yeah, yeah, you pay a guy to have a sharp axe versus a dull axe. Believe me, you wanted the sharp one. And so you'd pay the executioner. I mean, is there a possibility that Jesus went to the Roman guard that morning and said, hey, listen, I I know kind of how this works and what you do. I will pay you or I'll make sure one of my apostles pays you. When you come to me, instead of breaking my legs, would you pierce me in the side? Now, he doesn't have to tell the Roman guard why that's important to him. Could that have happened? Sure. There's absolutely the possibility of that happening. There is absolutely some of these prophecies that Jesus could have said, oh, I need to make sure I do this today, make it look like I'm fulfilling prophecy. But how would he manipulate where he was born? How would he manipulate how he was born? How would he manipulate the family line that he was born into? How would he as a small baby manipulate foreign dignitaries traveling across the continent to come and to worship him and give tremendous gifts of of great wealth? How would he manipulate that? I mean, folks, I think the only way you could explain that is he'd have to be... We'd have to be God, wouldn't he? Your objection proves the point. Only Did God manipulate all the events? He absolutely did. You caught him. He absolutely manipulated all that to make it sure it happened, just like he said. You know, another objection, this is, I think, even, even more neat. It was a coincidence. This man named Jesus was born, walked through life, and bumped into all 61 of these prophecies. I mean, I guess some of that could happen. I mean, obviously, folks, Jesus wasn't the only person born in Bethlehem. Other people were born in Bethlehem. And I'm going to step out on a limb and say 99% of the boys born in Bethlehem were of the family line of Abraham all the way down through David because they lived in their tribes. They lived in certain areas. Bethlehem belonged to David. That would have been his extended family. So, you know what? A lot of boys born in Bethlehem fulfill at least two prophecies. 
but Jesus didn't fulfill two prophecies. There's a, a, a mathematician named Peter Sanger who wrote an article uh, in a magazine called Science Speaks. And he, through his math, I'm not a mathematician, I don't know how he would have come up with this. But he developed a formula for figuring out the probability of Jesus. And he pulled out eight of the prophecies. The probability of him just living, not, not being the son of God, just being a person who walked through life and fulfilled eight of the prophecies. And he came up with a probability of one times ten to the seventeenth power. Now, you've you heard the expression, you got one in a million chance? If somebody tells you you've got one in a million chance, they're basically saying it's impossible, right? Well, one, one in a million chance is one times ten to the fifth power. In other words, that's five zeros after a ten. So one times ten to the seventeenth power is one with a ten with seventeen zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number is. And I think Peter Singer counted on the fact we wouldn't know what that number is. So he worked out a formula to illustrate that. And if he said, he said, if you had one times 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars, would you like that many silver dollars? That'd be a load of cash, folks. The answer is yes, I would like that. Okay, so helping you out there. If you had that many silver dollars, you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. The entire state. So here's the probability. In that entire state, largest, well, Alaska, but... I'm from Texas. That's the real large state and country. If you could cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and one of those silver dollars had a red X on it, what he is expressing of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies would be the same as you flying over the state of Texas in a small plane, jumping out at your choice. Now that lost most of you. You give up right there with a parachute, of course. But you choose blindly to jump out of a plane with a parachute where you land. You put your hand down into the silver coins and pull up the one with the red X. That's the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. But Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled 61 prophecies. In other words, folks, God made it a statistical impossibility that anyone could just exist and bump into all of these uh, all of these prophecies. Now somebody might say, but I don't believe in some of that. So, some of those prophecies you're talking about are things like the virgin birth or God speaking from heaven or, or a resurrection. I don't believe in miracles. Okay, let's take the miracles out. Let, let, let's not deal with any of the prophecies dealing with miracles. Did you know that of all those prophecies, Jesus still fulfilled 50 non-miraculous miracles. So even when you step out to remove the supernatural... It's still supernatural. What happened? Now, folks, obviously the world thinks of you and I as somewhat non-intellectual. Because intellect tells us people are not born of virgins. We've got a lot of evidence to prove that, don't we? Intellect tells us people don't walk on water. A lot of evidence. A lot of evidence says people do not walk on water. A lot of evidence that people don't rise from the dead. I mean, we really are batting very high on what happens when people go in the, bat in the ground. So intellect tells us those things don't happen. Guess what, folks? God knows that. God knows that he's calling you and I to believe the unbelievable. But did you know that New Testament faith is not a call to ignorance? It's not a call to, to fairy tales and to fairy dust and to, and to myths. God calls us to faith. The New Testament describes faith as a hope, a belief in things unseen. But that faith is not fueled by ignorance. The faith is fueled by evidence. God gives evidence. So knowing that way out there, he's going to do this unbelievable thing, he started marking the path for us. 
so that we could slowly build, so that we could slowly identify, so that by the time we got there and he does this incredibly unbelievable thing, if we have followed all the prophecies, we, man, that's the, next, next rule, that's the next natural step. It's the most believable thing there is. God fuels our faith. So that when you and I read this, this thing we call the Christmas story, in Matthew 1 through 2 and in Luke 1 through 2, we can read this and say, this is true. This isn't just a warm religious story that I've suspended belief and, and chose to accept. No, these are actual historical events and it happened just like it was written. That's what the prophecies tell us. As a matter of fact, folks, I think the prophecies call on us to leave today with three things. Number one, we can be sure that Jesus Christ is the one from heaven, the very Son of God. That's a big deal. Is there a God? And has that God revealed Himself? It is the prophecies that guide us into a faith and into being able to identify Jesus Christ. We can know. It's not just what we chose to believe. Well, I was born in America, so of course that's what I'm going to believe. No, we've got evidence for that. Number two, while it is faith, it's not non-intellectual to believe in Jesus. You know, back on those verses, I put some dating. That dating is not debatable. We know those documents. We know those writings existed 400, 500, 700, 1,000 years prior to Jesus walking on the earth. Sometimes there's some debate. We have conservative theologians and we have liberal theologians. And sometimes they debate some of these things. And a lot of times they debate these things because they want to show how prophecy is not prophecy. That they weren't telling the future. Some on some of the things that happened in Israel, and so you might get a liberal theologian. No, Isaiah didn't write that in 740 BC. He wrote that in in 400 BC. Okay, that's still be 400 years before Jesus walked on the. I think at that point it doesn't matter, does it? Whether it's 400 years or 700 years, he is describing the prophecy. He's describing what is going to happen. The fulfillment of those prophecies is historically provable. Now, when I say that, folks, let's all agree. There's people that aren't going to accept the Bible as evidence, right? That's a circular argument. The Bible makes a point, and the Bible fulfills the point. I don't even believe in the Bible. I, 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 that's not a valid source for history. But, folks, there are Roman historians, there are Jewish historians that were not Christians, that were not trying to prove something about Jesus, uh, about Christianity. They're simply recording history because that's what they are. They're historians, and from their writings, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt there was a man named Jesus who existed during that time period, that that man was crucified on a cross, that he was hung between two thieves, that he was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, that the rumor, the story of his resurrection was going around. That's all historically proven, even without the Bible. So is the virgin birth a big deal to swallow? Is that kind of hard to believe? Sure it is. But when you look at the evidence that God gives us walking up to that moment, all of a sudden God's given us what we need to take that step of faith. And that leads us to our third point. We can have great confidence, folks, in our faith. We can have great confidence in giving ourselves to follow wholly the person of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our God. There's a God. His name is Jesus. He has spoken. And all of this stuff proves it. Now that, that should mean something. When, when we say it proves He is the Son of God, then that really elevates to a whole entire new level a statement like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Nobody will come to the Father. Nobody in this room will go to heaven. Nobody will come into a relationship with the Father without coming through me. Who said that? The very Son of God. See, when you start to see the evidence that God gives to proving that, then that becomes, that becomes the weight of our faith in His words. Our, our, the weight of our faith in coming to Jesus as a Savior and a God. But even as we come to Him as a Savior and God, because I would imagine many of us in this room have already done that. What about Jesus' call to follow? What about Jesus' call to live for Him every single day with every thought, with every word, with every action, with every attitude? We are to look like Christ. You see, when we say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we have to take all of His words and add that kind of weight to it. Folks, this should change our lives. There should be nothing about tomorrow that is ever the same again when you come to understand the evidence that God has given us for that call place our faith in Jesus Christ and follow Him. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You today. We thank You. We worship You. Oh, You call us to faith. You, you call us to step out into things we cannot see or fully grasp. But You don't call us to be ignorant in that step. You don't call us to be stupid in that step. You're a God who invented the mind. You're, you're a God who told us to love you with our mind, with our intellect. You've given us evidence and you have fueled that intellect to have a faith that would say, I will trust in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life my way to forgiveness, my way to a relationship with God, my way to heaven. You've given us the faith we need, the confidence, the evidence we need, though it will be very unpopular in this world, though it can cost us, though people might mock us for it. We've got everything we need to get right in step with Jesus Christ and seek to live in every way that He would live, to take every step that He would take. Oh Lord, may those of us who call ourselves believers in the Christmas story, believers in Jesus, may we go home this afternoon and weigh afresh the evidence of our faith and may it affect how we live for you this week. It's in Jesus' name we ask for your help in this. Amen.